You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I aged, I traveled, I worked. Yeah, life goes on. I haven't recorded, I think, in over two weeks. I think the last time I recorded was like the Wednesday after the comedy episode came out. So I feel way out of practice. It actually feels super weird. And not just because I'm doing this at like eight in the morning after being out all night. And anyway... No new movies this week because I only saw work ones for the for the other gig. But, uh, you know, maybe go see bros. It's super funny and lovely. And it would certainly, you know, at the very least, make Billy Eichner happy. He had a rough time accepting those box office numbers, didn't he? Before we get into this stuff, I have a quick correction. In the horror episode two weeks ago, I said that Get Out was the first horror movie since Silence of the Lambs to be nominated for Best Picture, but The Sixth Sense was nominated in 1999. That's an oops. Also, technically, Black Swan from 2010 is considered a horror movie. I don't consider that a horror movie. I consider that more of a supernatural thriller. But, you know, as we learned, that's that's genre theory for you. So this month, I'm very excited for, we're covering a series of real people and stranger than fiction events that would inspire several of the biggest films ever to illuminate the silver screen. This is my opportunity to get a little bit out of film land and live vicariously in true crime paranormal ghost land, which is my other love. But there was no way in hell I was going to be able to make a true crime podcast and make any dent in that incredibly inundated market. So, film podcast. Also, there were no film podcasts, so I made a film podcast. Then there was no other film. <laughs> there were no other film. There were no film podcasts that were like about film history, other than like you must remember this. But you know that one's a very. It's a good one, but it's a very spe- specialized one. This is the hundredth episode. I'm very excited about it, even though my voice may not reflect it because I am quite a monotoned individual. But also because it's very early, I've not had coffee and that kind of good, all that goodness. It's it's funny to think about like how petrified I was the first time I. Started recording this. I think it took me like two hours to get all the equipment set up. And I think this morning it took maybe five minutes. So at the very least, I'm way more comfortable in front of this microphone. My friend uh, actually put, <laughs> I think it was the Italian cinema episode on in the car yesterday. When we were going to his birthday dinner and I my soul left my body. So that's, that's an interesting development too. <laughs> Even though I would rather listen to one from like the last six months or so than like the first episode episode one. So Dan, if if you do listen to this one, he's not a horror boy. Um, please don't put please don't put the early ones on in the car. 
I'm I'm in a healthy level of denial that I was that that bad. In comparison to how I am now, I'm still very mediocre now, but I'm definitely better than I was. Anyway, this is getting way too talky for what I like to do at the top of these episodes. But thank you for those of you who've stuck around or if you've just found this podcast, welcome. This is my hundredth one. I'm still, you know, developing. This is still just me doing all this chaos. But, you know, I'm having a good time. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be doing it. So, yeah. This week, we're uncovering the very real man whose crimes served as inspiration for Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, and so many other films, TV shows, books, media, madness. We're going to go into how... Uh, the filmmakers of these films, these three specific films, cherry-picked elements of this man's evil deeds to create some of the most terrifying films from the echelons of cinema. We'll also go into how these films revolutionized the horror genre not once, not twice, but three separate times. Also, just a little heads up, there will be some descriptions of the, the things that happened, not in any deep depth but there will be some and this one this guy was a gnarly dude he did some horror i mean they all he did a murder a murder is horrible but it's sort of what happened after the murder happened that kind of makes this one super messed up and creepy and why he's had such an impact that he has on cinema. So if you're a little bit squeamish, as much as it pains me to say this, maybe skip this one or jump ahead a little bit. I don't get graphic because that is not what this podcast is for. But, you know, I had to at least shade some detail in. So it is there. I could have said a lot more worse things, especially for this dude. So if I'm forgetting something, if you know who this person is, the things I didn't put in were intentional (laughs) omissions just to kind of stay on brand as possible for this podcast, we're not going to talk about, you know, other nasty things he kept in boxes. If you know, you know. If you don't know, there's links in the show notes. If you want to delve in, there are pictures in a lot of them, so be warned. That's that's my disclaimer for this week. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Is your time so empty? No. Well, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do a little... Uh, Errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? Well, a a boy's best friend is his mother. The call to action was simple. Find Bernice Warden. But when Washara County Sheriff's deputies came upon the horror in a barn on that November 1957 morning, the soon-to-be-revealed crimes of the Plainfield ghoul would send shockwaves out from the small community of Plainfield all the way to Tinseltown. The perpetrator of these crimes was Edward Theodore Gein, who was born in August 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to George and Augusta. Gein's mother was a religious fanatic who taught her impressionable son about super fun things like how the world was a cesspool of sin, alcohol was evil, unsurprisingly her husband, whom she hated, was an alcoholic, and she cruelly and often reminded him of how useless he was, rightfully or not. It's not fun to be shit on. 
She also taught him that all other women, she conveniently was not one of them, were a part of Satan's toolkit. Augusta would spend some time every single afternoon reading the Bible and was reportedly particularly fond of the parts about the apocalypse, death, murder, and divine punishment. The patriarch of the family, when he could find work, eventually managed to own a grocery store. How he managed to do that, I could not find out. I guess it was just nice to be like white in the in the 1920s or 10s, 1910s. But he eventually sold it in order to move his family to a rural farm on the outskirts of Plainfield, Wisconsin. This was actually Augusta's idea. She wore the proverbial pants in this household as she was the only grown up who could hold down a steady job. She was also starting to view lacrosse as a cesspool for sin, a modern Sodom and Gomorrah, and wanted to ensure her children would not be tainted by the big city. Lacrosse was not a big city, but, you know, semantics. Augusta took advantage of the family's new isolated state in Plainfield, Wisconsin, which was the farm that they lived on was like six miles away from the town of Plainfield, which was described in a guidebook as, quote, nondescript. She believed that this would allow her to keep her son safe. Gein had an older brother named Henry, whom was five years his senior, from the world's wicked ways. Young Gein left the farm only to attend school, and most of his free time was devoted to farm chores, which isn't free time, it's free labor, but again, semantics. Around this time, when Gein was seven-ish, he allegedly became aroused seeing blood and guts. Some of you might know where this is going. As a child, Gein was described as shy, and classmates and teachers would recall him as having just odd little quirks, such as just laughing at weird, inappropriate times like he was laughing at his own joke that nobody else was privy to because it was in his head. Despite his poor social skills, Gein was reportedly a solid reader and overall a pretty good student. The young man had been born with a mass on his left eye that caused it to droop, as well as a lesion on his tongue that caused a speech impediment. And for good measure, he also had a little bit of a stammer. To make matters worse, Augusta punished him whenever he tried to make friends, and that was hard enough without her help. Gein was teased on his physical appearance, speech pattern, slightly effeminate matter, remember this is the 1910s, and, you know, that's just bully fodder if I've ever heard of it. Not excusing it, but, you know, kids have bullied kids for having just one of these qualities, or even none of these qualities. Kids are a-holes. Without companions of any kind, Gein began finding solace in pulp novels, particularly ones that dealt with Nazis and cannibalism. In April 1940, when Gein was 33, his father died of alcohol-related heart failure. Gein was still living on the family farm, and he and his brother were forced to take on odd jobs in Plainfield in order to make ends meet financially. While both worked most often as handymen, Ed also babysat, a job he enjoyed as he preferred the company to children over adults, which you'd know, red flag. A little bit after that, the love bug bit the older Gein, and as a result, Henry planned to move in with his girlfriend and her two young children. The only thing keeping Henry from doing so was the fear of what would happen to Ed if he moved. He knew that his younger brother was way too attached to their mother. Their very, very mean, vicious mother. Henry would often speak ill of her in front of Ed, which Ed did not appreciate. On May 16, 1944, Henry and Ed were reportedly burning some vegetation on their property, but the fire got out of control and required the local fire department to put out. 
After the fire was out, Henry was nowhere to be found, and Ed would report him missing. A search party was formed, and Henry's body was ultimately found because Ed more or less led them directly there. Despite these suspicious circumstances, Henry's cause of death was ruled as heart failure and asphyxiation since he had not been burned or injured otherwise. It was later reported by Gein biographer Harold Schechter that Henry had suspicious bruises on his head when he was found. No official autopsy and only a very brief investigation of this ever occurred. With 42-year-old Henry deceased, Ed and his mother were completely alone. Augusta continued to constantly berate and admonish her 37-year-old son, accusing him of being wicked and sinful. Augusta had a really bad stroke shortly after Henry's death, and Gein became her full-time caretaker. Gein at this time was still seen as odd, but more like a simple and harmless odd more than anything else. Weird, yes, but not like in a murdery way. Augusta died in December 1945 at the age of 67. Ed was devastated by her death. In the words of biographer Schechter, he had, quote, lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world. Gein boarded up the rooms his mother had used, including the entire upstairs, the downstairs parlor and living room, leaving them completely untouched. While the rest of the house became increasingly super freaking disgusting, these rooms were kept immaculate. Gein himself would live from then on in a small room off the kitchen. Ten years after Augusta Gein's death on November 16, 1957, the first day of deer hunting season, aka the day of the year 99% of the men in town would be out in the forest, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden vanished. Her son Frank, a part-time sheriff's deputy, was alerted that something was off at the family business by the owner of the local gas station. Frank Warden had pulled up to the station to fill his car after his unsuccessful day of deer hunting, which was when the gas station owner informed him that he'd seen the hardware store's delivery truck zoom off around 9.30 that morning, leaving the store unlocked and unattended, which was incredibly unusual. Frank entered the store around 5 p.m. to find the cash register open and bloodstains on the floor, which led out the back door. The 22 rifle that was used as protection in the store had also been removed from its typical spot and placed on the counter. Next to it was a receipt for antifreeze. Seeing that, Frank had a hunch. You see, for a while by this point, the local loner had become a little sweet on the 50-something hardware store owner, even going so far as to invite her to the local roller rink on a date. Frank recalled said loner coming into the store the prior evening, asking about the cost of a gallon of antifreeze. Frank called his boss at the sheriff's station, alerting him of the situation and his suspicions, and the sheriff found Frank pacing at the store, claiming that Ed Gein must have kidnapped his mother. It didn't take long for authorities to find Ed, small town, whom was apprehended at his neighbor's house while they were having dinner on suspicions of kidnapping Bernice. Initially, Gein tried to talk his way out of the situation, but he was he was a, just kind of a he was just a simpler, simpler individual. 
He claimed that he had been framed, that he hadn't killed Bernice. When the officers asked how he knew Bernice was dead, they didn't think she was dead at this point, he claimed to have been told while inside the neighbor's house having dinner. You know, because there was totally a way they could know that Bernice was dead. Very likely, they didn't even know Bernice was missing. Unsurprisingly... That didn't fool the officers, and the deputies arrested him. The sheriff and some other deputies then descended on the Gein farm, which was locked tight, but they managed to gain entry through a summer shed or summer kitchen, I heard it called in another uh, source, but they got in through there by kicking down the door. They were immediately greeted by a pitch black house. This was full last night by this point, and a rancid smell. If you're more squeamish, jump ahead about 30 seconds a minute. This is This is the most graphic part right here. The sheriff scrambled in the darkness until one of them ran into a suspended mass in the middle of the room. When he aimed his flashlight at said mass, which he thought was a deer, he was horrified to discover the remains of Bernice Warden. Her decapitated body was hung from the rafters, and she had been dressed out like a deer and had been shot by a twenty-two caliber rifle. Gein would later claim that he killed her on accident. The deputies exited the shack, and soon after, the contents of their stomachs followed. They called for backup immediately. If that was right through a door, they couldn't fathom what must be inside the rest of the house. Turned out, no one could. The Gein farm had no electricity. Most rural farms didn't at this time. So the investigation that ensued had to rely on flashlights and kerosene lamps. Basically, they just got to take, you know, a flashlight and just spotlight all of the horrible shit they were about to find. Because beyond Bernice's body was a literal house of horror. It became immediately clear to deputies that Ed Gein had been slash was a hoarder. There was garbage, rotting food, and newspapers, and comics, and books, which made kind of navigating through the house quite difficult, a process which was made even more difficult by the reported horrible smell. The entire house was also coated in a thick layer of dust. Turns out the garbage and the nasty shit and the random crap was the nice part of what they would find in this house. At one point, one of the officers listed an odd-looking bowl off of the kitchen table. To his surprise and sheer horror, he realized that the bowl was made of a human skull. It was later discovered that Gein had also used two human skulls to decorate his bedposts. But his favorite decorating tool, other than skulls, seemed to be skin. Lady skin, to be exact. Lampshades, chairs, garbage cans, and even a belt made out of women's nipples were among the items found in the house. He'd also fashioned a women's skin suit, which came with interchangeable faces of dead people. There were also other extremities and noses found in boxes. There was a lot of other awful shit, but I'm pretty sure you get the idea. Like, he used a set of lips as a shade puller. It's, it's, it's all, it's bad. Some of Bernice's innards were found in, like, a bag in the kitchen, leading investigators to believe, though this has not really been fully proven, that Gein was very likely eating his victims as well. Her head was found near another gruesome discovery, the remains of a second victim, one whom was identified by authorities when they came upon one of Gein's skin masks. This particular one had hair still attached, hair they recognized immediately. 54-year-old Mary Hogan had disappeared three years prior, almost to the day, on December 8, 1954, from her German tavern located seven miles north of Plainfield. They'd found her at last. 
Gein had almost certainly murdered her. Ed Gein was interviewed formally for the first time for all this shit three days after its discovery. While he didn't enjoy talking about the murders, he was all too eager to recount to authorities about his grave robbing activities in order to make his macabre interior design projects. He told authorities he'd gotten the inspiration to do this from the pulp novels he loved so much. Gein would later admit that he'd wear his lady skin suit and masks around the farm so he could feel like a real lady, specifically his mother. His victims, including the graves he robbed, all belonged to women whom he believed resembled his mother. He would follow the obituaries in the newspaper, looking for women whom fit the bill, and after they were buried within a day or so when the dirt was still fresh, he'd go over to the graveyard, dig them up, and, you know, take what he felt he needed. When he started to run out of bodies, he killed Bernice and Mary. Almost a week after the Gein House of Horror was uncovered, a group of investigators had to go to the cemetery to prove Gein's other crimes. Gein had identified either nine or 11 graves, depending on the source that he desecrated, though only two or three were unearthed to corroborate the story. In the case of these, the coffins had been split open, with most or all of the corpses found missing. That was all they needed to know. Gein was clearly telling the truth. It was later determined that Gein started grave robbing about two years after his mother died. While his mother was buried in this cemetery, he never desecrated her grave. On November 23rd, just two days before the horrible fact-finding mission at the cemetery took place, Gein was admitted to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He'd been deemed legally insane two days earlier due to his diagnosed schizophrenia and therefore found mentally incompetent to stand trial. At that time, anyway. That didn't stop a full media circus from occurring in the interim. Scores of reporters descended upon the town for the scoop on the Plainfield Ghoul. The following March, likely done by someone not wanting the Gein property to become a tourist attraction, depending on the source, it was it was burned down like right before the land was supposed to go up for auction. But magically, the farmhouse just burnt down. The majority of the items seized for evidence were, quote, decently disposed of by the local crime lab after they were photographed and cataloged. Remember, this is like the 1950s. This was before DNA. So there was absolutely no way to figure out, you know, what belonged to whom. One surviving item was Gein's car, which was bought for $700 at an auction and used as a sideshow attraction for many years. You could take your picture with the Ed Gein car for just 25 cents. While it was only ever proven definitively that Gein had killed two people, Bernice and Mary, it is believed that there could have been as many as seven more, including his brother. Gein was deemed mentally fit to stand trial in 1968, at which time, after a week of hearings, he was once again deemed legally insane and lived out the rest of his life at Central State Hospital, dying at the age of 78 of respiratory failure due to lung cancer on July 26, 1984. Over the years, souvenir seekers chipped pieces from Gein's headstone at the Plainfield Cemetery where he had been laid to rest until the stone was stolen altogether in 2000. It was recovered in June 2001 near Seattle, Washington, and was placed in storage at the Washara Sheriff's Department. The grave itself is unmarked to this day, but not hard to find at all as he is interred between his parents and brother. 
And yes, Ed Gein's final resting place is in the very same cemetery that he desecrated on a regular basis. Now, if you're a horror fiend like me, I'm guessing that quite a few films popped into your mind when describing Ed Gein and his super messed up hobbies and crimes. In an additional super messed up way, Gein has become a member of American folklore, an evil killer and grave robber with no moral compass. Despite only definitively killing two people, Gein's crimes have arguably had the largest effect on cinema as a whole, at least in the horror genre. So now let's dive in to a little bit about what parts of his crimes influenced three major motion pictures. The earliest work of fiction, though maybe not the most obvious due to the lack of macabre arts and crafts present in its very famous film adaption, was the 1959 novel Psycho written by Robert Block. Block had lived just 35 miles away from Plainfield when Gein's crimes had been uncovered, though he claimed not to be aware of them as they initially unfolded. Psycho had been nearly completed when Gein had gotten busted, so Block inserted a line alluding to Gein in one of the book's final chapters. All other similarities, Block claims, are unintentional. He further stated later that he was actually surprised when he actually heard the story of Ed Gein and how similar it was to that of his character Norman Bates's whole background. He claims totally coincidence. I don't know if I totally believe him in that, especially considering his proximity to the crimes. But you be the judge for you. But the dude lived a little too close to not know anything about that shit. And he wasn't living alone because I was like, well, maybe he was living alone. It was rural. No, he and his wife had moved there to be closer to her family. And that's a lot of eyes and ears and mouths in your house. And they all completely missed out on this. I, I doubt it. The novel was, of course, adapted into 1960 Psycho, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and the film more or less follows the plot of the book, though some things, of course, had to be changed due to film censors at the time. For example, in the book, Mary, or Marion as she's called in the film, is actually decapitated after she is stabbed to death in the shower. In the film, Norman Bates, who is the character inspired by Ed Gein, is into taxidermy instead of the occult, metaphysical, and general naughty books that his literary counterpart loved. Gein just loved his crazy cannibal Nazi pulp novels. Like Gein, or kind of like Gein, it is revealed at the end of the film that Norman is dressing up in his mother's, you know, his mother's clothes for the sake of the film or, you know, the skin suit, as, the, as was the case for Gein. Norman did this to commit atrocities that up until this point, we the audience believe to be the actions of Norma Bates. In the reality of the film, Norman killed his mother years ago and her mummified remains were placed just so in the basement. Norma had gotten jealous that his mother had gotten a bow, so he poisoned and killed them both. To suppress his guilt, he developed an alternate personality, that of his mother, who was just as cruel and possessive as the real Mrs. Bates was, which is not dissimilar to how Augusta was. Norman retrieved her corpse from the cemetery and preserved it, and whenever he became lucid to, you know, the awful crap he did, he would get drunk, dress in Mrs. Bates's clothes, and speak to himself in her voice. The mother personality had killed Marion because she was jealous of Norman feeling grown-up things towards Marion. Psycho and everything around its production and release will go into greater detail sometime down the line, because there are some great stories that 
just aren't relevant right now. And the film broke down so many barriers for American cinema and was one of the films that more or less shattered what was remaining of the Hayes Code. That was the set of rules that had been governing the quote unquote decency of American cinema for about 30 years by this point. And I mean, you know... This film showed a naked lady getting stabbed to death, a man dressing as a woman, and gasp, a toilet flushing, things that would have never flown in the 1950s. Psycho, while receiving mixed reviews from critics, was a box office success, the second highest grossing film of 1960 and the highest of Hitchcock's entire career and arguably his best known film. Hitchcock swapped his $15 million payday for the film for shares in Universal, becoming the third highest stakeholder in the company, effectively becoming his own boss. And isn't that the dream? Also, for the first time, at least in American cinema, the monster in a horror film wasn't a literal monster. Norman Bates had zero supernatural powers or advantages. He was just some guy. We all know some guy. But isn't the knowledge that some guy could commit such atrocities more terrifying than a vampire or a mummy? That's what the 1960s audiences thought, and therefore, the ordinary middle American man became a popular figure in American horror for the next several years. Psycho single-handedly revitalized a stagnated horror film market, one that had been inundated with mostly one-note monsters. Psycho became a pop culture monument, with the shower scene becoming synonymous with the word cinema. And 60 years later, that has not changed. And like we discussed a couple weeks ago, Psycho unlocked the door to a new era of horror, one with infinitely more on-screen violence. It would ultimately culminate in the splatter films, all the way up to Psycho's great-great-grandchild, the torture porn. Over the years, some, let's say, lesser quality films released based on Gein's crimes. Um, there was 1972's Three on a Meat Hook, which was all style and no substance. From the clips I managed to find, it's just, whew. Um, there's also, in 1974, another film called Diabolical, which was very closely based on Gein's crimes, but did not use his name. Also, in 1974, a sometimes documentarian named Tobe Hooper was working as an assistant director at the University of Texas at Austin. He had recently written a story involving the elements of isolation, the woods, and darkness. So he took that story and combined elements of the violence he was seeing on the news at that time. This was a post-Watergate, post-Nietnam world, and a lot of Americans, Hooper included, felt a major sense of media fatigue and disillusionment. So with those two things, finally, he added elements of Ed Gein's violent crimes to create the horrific Sawyers, later Slaughters, a family of cannibals whom lure unsuspecting teenagers to their doom. Another inspiration was Texan serial killer Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., whom abducted and or lured young boys to be assaulted, tortured, and killed by Dean Corll and David Owen Brooks until Henley shot and killed Corll. Henley would also admit to participating in later murders. In all, 28 teenagers and young men were killed by the trio in what was called the Houston Mass Murders. Texas Chainsaw Massacre first introduces us to four all-American teens on a road trip to check on two of the group's grandfather's grave, as there had been reports in the area of grave robbing and vandalism. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker who scares the shit out of them, attacks one of them with a knife after he wouldn't pay for a Polaroid the dude took of him, and then they kick him out of the van. 
Later, upon discovering that the local gas station has no gas, the group head to a property once owned by their deceased grandfather to wait for the gas truck to show up. Not long after, two of the party come upon a creepy house in the middle of nowhere with furniture made of human remains. The two are assaulted by the mute, domineering force of Leatherface, whom makes quick work of them. Leatherface got his name as, like Gein did from time to time, he wears a skin mask made of another human's face. The film's climax involves Sally, whom is captured by Leatherface, who by this point has changed into a dress, which Gein didn't do, but his prior cinema inspiration did, and his family of cannibals. The kitchen the scene takes place in would have been Gein's perfect Pottery Barn catalog page. A lot of body parts, making up a lot of furniture in that scene. Now, of course, this film differs wildly from Gein in that there was a whole cannibal family, but you can see the echoes of him everywhere from the decor of the house, the grave robbing, and of course, the soon-to-be iconic mask used by the film's main villain. Made for somewhere between 93000 to 300000 depending on the source, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, while pretty much universally reviled by critics upon its release, was a huge hit with audiences, whom were driven to the theaters in part due to the fact that Hooper, in the marketing of the film, claimed that it was a true story. And it always feels like you're getting away with something a little naughty if you think you're watching something real that is also super effed up. Today, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is still considered one of the best horror films ever made, as well as one of its most controversial. Films like Halloween, Evil Dead, and House of a Thousand Corpses, for better or worse, could not exist had it not been for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, like any film that gets made cheaply and does well at the box office, a series of copycat films followed. We wouldn't have the slasher genre if that wasn't the case. But other films would base their antagonist's whole vibe just after Ed Gein. This included films like Fun House from 1981, as well as the scores of sequels Psycho and The Chainsaw Films had, the latter of which had a sequel just this year, 2022. The final major film, Ed Gein's Crimes Inspired, also originated as a novel. Author Thomas Harris used the idea of a woman's skin suit in his novel The Silence of the Lambs as the motive for serial killer Buffalo Bill in the second book in his series detailing the shenanigans of one Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Harris also reportedly based the characters on five additional serial killers, so there's a whisper of Gein, but not as direct as the previous two had been. In the film, the killer known as Buffalo Bill in the press lures plus-size women into his van, abducts them, sticks them in an underground well, starves them for a few days before killing them and skinning them to make a women's skin suit. Like Gein, the character also had a slight speech impediment. After that, most of the similarities between the two of them end. In the film, FBI cadet Clarice Starling is tasked to attempt to figure out who is doing these murders by enlisting the help of Dr. Lecter, a cannibal and former psychologist. Once again, The Silence of the Lambs was a huge success, though this time both critically and at the box office. The film would go on to win Best Picture at the Oscars, the first and so far only horror film to ever claim that mantle, as well as the four other awards that make up the Oscars' Big Five, writing, directing, plus Best Actor and Actress. Silence of the Lambs was only the third film to ever achieve this. 30-plus years later, no film has managed to do so again. 
Now, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention the fact that there is a 2000 biopic about Ed Gein that was released, creatively called Ed Gein, but it was also titled In the Light of the Moon, named for Gein's favorite time to wear his skin suit. There was also Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield from 2007, which was another quote-unquote biopic, but it's ironically a thinly-veiled Texas Chainsaw ripoff than anything else. The filmmakers were just capitalizing on the name Gein to sell tickets. The dude playing Gein is not a small, demure man like the real Gein was. Rather, this dude was well over six feet tall and was best known for playing Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th films. So yeah, big, big dude. Not not a tiny little quiet man. Now, with the release of the Ryan Murphy series Dahmer a few weeks ago or about a month ago, I think by now, there's been a lot of discussion on the ethics of glorifying serial killers by recreating their exploits, re-traumatizing those whom lived through them firsthand. Like in the case of this one, the entire town of Plainfield still has to reckon with, you know, all of this shit that Ed Gein did. A lot of stuff has happened since then, but, you know, no one's going to remember, like, young man who did well at a plane field if there was a dude who had a belt of nipples in his house. That's just unfortunately how the world works. And not even to get into, you know, the families of these women who, you know, either knew this guy killed them or they don't even know what happened to their loved one's body because he did some creepy shit with it. You know, so probably seeing some of this stuff, not their favorite thing. In the case of that, though these three films that we just discussed did get influence from Ed Gein, his name is never mentioned in either of them, but using real-life killers as muses for horror films, be it biopic or just a partial inspiration, is just it's just the nature of the beast. It's an attempt to show evil and chaos in a world striving for good and moral order. That's what this is. There are exploitation ones, but if they're done well and if they're done intelligently, it's supposed to be a mirror or a vessel to show how the filmmaker sees society, not just a stabby stabby murder fest. And it's kind of important to remember in an era where we are trying to be a little bit more PC and sensitive to other people's plights, that art can't be sweet and clean and devoid of controversy and just make you be comfortable all the time. It has to deep into controversy or the taboo. Nothing ever gets better by drawing in the lines. Just look at any country's films during eras of heavy censorship. While they might be a fun little watch, they're not anything special, by and large. We don't live in a world free of conflict and horrible things, and sometimes people want to express themselves through horrible events. We can't just pretend they're not there bubbling under the surface of ordinary people. And it's it's a huge gripe I have. I'm sure I'm not alone in this. When, you know, people who are a little bit more sensitive, I'll try and be PC about this, and not use the word I'd like to. I don't want to get canceled at the level I'm currently at, which is, you know, very, very, very off Broadway. Um, Attempting to tell artists what they can and can't do or can and can't make films about because it hurts somebody's feelings or is offensive to someone is a detriment to art. We have to be allowed to discover the darkest parts of our souls as well as the nicer parts. But that's just my two cents on it. Anyway... With all of this in mind, Ed Gein was a sick individual, literally and figuratively, whose wicked deeds inspired some of the best horror movies of all time. While these films are terrifying in their own right, they pale in comparison to the real story of the Butcher of Plainfield. 
It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. Mr. My family will pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. Okay. 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 And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also buy me a coffee. I did not have time to make coffee because literally the second I hit stop on this, I have to run to brunch for um, my friend's birthday. So I will have coffee there. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the real, quote unquote, events that influenced what many believe to be the scariest film ever made. Once again, thanks for sticking around for 100 episodes. I'm very, very stoked. And also, thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.